you have your Bibles, do me a favor and open up to Psalm 130. Psalm 130 is actually called one of the seven penitential psalms. It's a, it's a song of penance. It's a song of confession, of lament. It's also called a Paulian psalm because much of it carries very similar words, ideas, concepts that Paul will continue to flesh out as he writes in the New Testament. I like this psalm because one, it's short. Two, the poet, the psalmist is going to paint a picture of a staircase for us. A place where he starts in the depths and where he ends in hope and realization of God's forgiveness. So read with me, please, in Psalm 130. Picking up in verse 1, we'll read through verse 8. My soul waits for the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice and let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This poet begins his psalm and begins this picture that he finds himself in saying out of the depths. It's, it's what one commentator called a miserable cry of a nobody to absolutely nowhere. This particular Hebrew word depths is only used five times in the Old Testament. But every time that it's used, it carries with it a connotation that implies death and destruction. Many of you, if you were here over the last series, got to hear Chan Kilgore preach out of the book of Jonah. And in that book, in chapter 2, Jonah declares and prays a, a prayer of lament in the belly of that fish. And that's one of the key areas where this same word is used. It's this feeling of complete and utter despair. It's like drowning in this chasm and in this bottomless pit. I can remember years ago, years ago when I was in college, being out camping by myself and being soaked to the bone, absolutely freezing, and sitting there shivering, trying to get warm in this feeling of just despair and lostness. Perhaps that's been you at some point in your life, but that is what the, that's what the psalmist, that's what this poet is telling us. He's saying, look, this is a, a spot of just a watery grave, a chaotic abyss that he finds himself in. And what he does is he says, he contrasts this to O Lord at the end of verse 1. The Hebrew word there for O Lord is actually Yahweh. That is the covenantal word 
for God. That is his covenantal name. This is the God of the heavens, the God of all. And what he is doing is he is painting this contrast between where he finds himself in the depths, where he finds himself in this watery, desolate grave, and the great chasm that exists between where he is and where God resides. It's this clear picture that he lays out for us. But look at how he continues in verse 2. In verse 2 he says to us, Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. It's not just that he's painting a picture for us of the chasm that exists between where he finds himself and where God resides. But the word in verse 2 that he uses for O Lord is not Yahweh. But it's a different Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai. He changes his wording for God there and he does that purposefully. He goes from declaring where God resides as Yahweh to now Adonai. This is a covenantal name as well, but this is his, his relational name. Throughout the Psalms, the term Adonai is used in relation to a master and a slave. In Psalm 123, just a few over, we see a picture of this where the psalmist says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. The poet is laying out a picture of where he and where we find ourselves. In this state of despair, separated from God in a way that we cannot, cannot bridge and it's not just that, but that we find ourselves in this enslaved state where we are in need of our God, in need of our master to take care of us and free us. Picking up in verse 3 and 4, look at what the poet writes. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? From here he continues on. He didn't tell us why he was in that pit in verse 1. He didn't tell us why he was in that particular spot. But in verse 3, he begins to enlighten us. It's because of his sin. This is the case where you and I find ourselves. It's in reference to human sinfulness. And the psalmist here is using a particular Hebrew word. He uses a word which is, which is pronounced awan. A word which at its root in Hebrew means to bend, to curve, to turn aside, and to twist. In our sin, what we have done, in our sin, what this psalmist is saying, what the poet is declaring and reminding us of. In our sin, we have twisted our dependence on God. Sin has created these consequences that have threatened not only our existence, but have brought death and destruction on us. Listen to this. Sin is living without reference to God. It's not viewing him to be the defining reality in our lives around which our entire lives are to be centered. That's how we were created. We were created male and female in the image of God with value, with purpose, that we might glorify him and love him. He was the center of all that we were created to be. And yet in sin, what we have done is we have denied that reality and gone our own way. Think of it this way. Maybe you've been there, maybe you haven't, but I've had the opportunity to see the White Cliffs in southern England. 
These gorgeous, magnificent white cliffs that overlook the straits on their way to France. And I've stood on the edge of those cliffs. And let's just say for a moment, I said, you know what? I deny the law of gravity. And I just step out over that cliff. Well, let me tell you what's going to happen. Let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to fall. Regardless of whether or not I choose to acknowledge if gravity is real or not. And you would be doing the same thing. You would be living as if gravity were of no consequence or importance in your life. You would never say that the law of gravity is arbitrary or that it's unreasonable and that you have to obey it, right? But here's here's the result of what happens. If we were to live that way, you know that the result of walking off that cliff and trying to break the law of gravity will do what? It will bring about death and it will bring about destruction. And that's what sin has done. Regardless of if it's true or whether or not you believe it or not, it's true. And in our sin, we've said, you know what? You know what? I don't need to live as though God is God. And the problem is we have broken God's loving law. And when we fail to honor who he is, when we say or imply by our actions that, you know what? He is of no real consequence or importance in any of my decisions or in any part of my life. This is the problem. We fail to fully be the people that God has created us to be. And what does that do? But it leads to our death and destruction. And like the poet in Psalm 130, we find ourselves in this pit of despair and destruction and death. The interesting part though here is that in the ESV, what does it do? But it translates that word sin, awan, as iniquities. My son asked me just literally the other day, he said, he said, what does iniquity mean? And I said, well, it's sin. He said, well, then why doesn't the Bible just call it sin? And so I was like, that's a really great question. I don't know. And I had to look it up. But listen to this. And this is, this is perfect for this. Throughout Scripture, Awan carries with it a greater sense than just the action of sin. But this, it refers more nearly to the guilt that is associated with sin. Awan, in one of the commentaries that I read, said this of iniquities. It is the flood of wrong and its consequences that sweeps life along and from which there is no escape apart from the liberating rescue of redemption. Iniquities carries with it something so much greater than just the word sin. It carries with it all the destructiveness that, carry, that comes along with sin. Our sin is not just isolated to us, but it leaves often a wake of destruction in its path. And it leaves us feeling guilty and depressed and anxious. Those are the iniquities that this, that this poet is, is enlightening us to in this psalm. And the psalmist actually uses the plural form here. He's not just confessing to a sin, but understand rather all sins. All sins that leave him and you and I broken and estranged from God and desperately in need of forgiveness. So he says this, he says, look, Lord, if you were to remember all of my iniquities, all of my sin, all of my guilt, all of my destruction, not just my behaviors, but all of the wake that it leaves behind, Lord, could I even stand? The word there in Hebrew used for stand actually means to stand in the presence of. Would we even be able to stand in the presence of a deity 
as holy and as righteous and as perfect as God himself? No. No. No, our sin is what R.C. Sproul refers to as cosmic treason against God. And he hates it. A righteous hatred against our rebellion and our wickedness and our awan, our iniquities. And so here we are, unable to stand before him with the list of countless sins and iniquities that line before us. But verse 4, he says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The Hebrew that word there used for forgiveness is used only 49 times in the Old Testament in the Hebrew. 49 times. 46 of them, every single time it's used as a verb. It is God forgiving. But three times it's used as a noun. And this is one of them. Daniel 9, as well as in the book of Nehemiah. And this is deliberate. With the amount of iniquity that we carry before God, with the amount of sin and destructive behaviors that we have before such a perfect and holy being, unable to stand before him, it needs to be more than just an action of God to forgive. But when he uses the noun form of this, he is telling us, the poet is clear, that forgiveness is not just something that God does. Forgiveness is a part of God's identity. It's who he is. It is his disposition to forgive. It's his disposition and his identity to forgive. That we might fear him. And this is not a fear of trembling, but a fear that we might be able to see him even more clearly than we do in our sin. And it's for the poet who is yet to realize the good news that is to come. Look at how he continues in verse 5. I wait for the Lord. He uses that word wait three times. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits. There it is the third time for the Lord. More than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. The, the psalmist knows that forgiveness is a part of who God is. He knows that his sin is so great that he does not even have the right to stand before him. But he waits. He waits knowing that hope and this forgiveness that has been promised to the people of Israel will come. He doesn't wait in vain. This is not some blind optimism. But he repeats three uh, twice, he says, more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. Guards would be placed over cities in the evening time and at night for fear of attack. These guards would be placed there to watch over the city during its times of vulnerability. But here's what the guards waited for. They knew for certainty that morning was coming. And they knew that it was coming at an appointed time. The poet is declaring to Israel and to himself... Hope comes, forgiveness comes. And he says, I know it comes as a watchman waiting for the morning. It comes with certainty. And it comes at a, at a, at a definite time. 
This is him preaching to himself where he was in the depths of his sin, in the mire, in the separation that he was unable to save himself from, to a God whose disposition and character and identity is to forgive. And he waits and watches knowing that that redemption comes. And he declares it to the people of Israel in the closing of this great psalm. Oh Israel, hope in the Lord. What he knows to be true for himself, he declares and preaches to the people of God. Oh Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. He asks the question, put your hope in the Lord. It's a statement actually, not a question. He says, put your hope in the Lord. And he, he tells them two things. He says this, because of his steadfast love. Men and women of the church, what this poet and what this psalmist is yet to realize, we live with the knowledge of. We have seen the steadfast love of God himself shown forth in the person of Jesus Christ. God himself in human form Love that walked among us in the midst of a people that were sinful and broken with their iniquities. Awan, with their destructive behaviors, with their disregard for God's laws and his center in all things. Bringing death and destruction upon ourselves, love came to us. Unfailing love. And it wasn't just that he came, but he did what we couldn't. Living the life of perfection that we so often miss day in and day out in our thought, in our words, in our deeds. But it's just continuing, he says, and with him is plentiful redemption. The second half of this, it's, it's a noun here. The redemption that he offers is full and complete. But in verse 8, he uses the verbal form. And he will redeem Israel from all of their iniquities. Awan. But the verbal form there carries a greater significance. The verbal form means to buy the freedom of something or to pay an atonement price for something. The power of this that this poet is yet to understand. The power of this that we have been able to see is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. The redemption that we have received, the forgiveness that is a part of God's disposition, that is a part of his identity, is shown forth in the cross of Jesus Christ. Where the steadfast love of God in the person of Christ went willingly and obediently and sacrificed himself in our place. The redemption of Israel that he is foretelling was the freedom and the forgiveness bought to us. The price for our sin placed on a substitute in our place. One of the reasons why this is called a Paulian psalm is because this so beautifully characterizes Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. In that letter that Paul pens to the city of Colossus, he writes this. He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son 
in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Paul, when he uses the word transfer there, is not something peaceful. Men and women of the church, it carries with it a level of violence. You might read the word transfer like I do and think, ah, it's like transferring cash from one account to another. It's transferring the title from one owner to another. But this is a picture that Paul gives us, very similar to the poet in Psalm 30, of what our forgiveness looks like. Where we find ourselves in the depths, a slave, where God literally grips us and rips us into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is no small task. This is no insignificant feat. This is glorious grace. Far beyond what any producer in Hollywood could ever put on the screen. Far more beautiful than any bride could ever walk down the aisle. And far more meaningful than any hug or kind word from a loved one. Our sin has left us in a depth and in a watery grave. Our sin and the wake of destruction that it carries has brought guilt and separation from a God who will punish it and will not, will not tolerate it. But the beauty of the cross is the picture of a God whose disposition and whose identity is forgiveness. And to those who recognize their sin and confess it to God and God alone, who understand the depths and the guilt that they carry in their sin, he is righteous and he is good to transfer you from that domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Where there is not only forgiveness of sin, but redemption. That is amazing news. Heavenly Father, Lord, this evening as we gather and we read through this short psalm, Lord, may we be reminded afresh of the sin and the rebellion that we have brought. Lord, of your hatred for it. But Lord, as much as we understand our sin, the beauty of the cross and the reminder of it is of your steadfast love and your full redemption. A God who did not leave us to death, who did not leave us to guilt, who did not leave us to destruction and an eternity in hell, but who carries an identity and a disposition of forgiveness, willingly and obediently gave of himself, shed his own blood, took on death in its full form, Awan. Lord, that we might 
be freed, transferred from a domain of darkness into the kingdom of your son. Lord, never let us forget our sin. The greatest knowledge and the greatest gift that we can be given is to know our sin because it leads to even greater knowledge, which is the forgiveness of that sin that can be found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ alone. In whose name we pray, amen.